This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit WOGCC.com. Last week, we kicked off a brand new series called Prepare, and I talked to you about living out of the overflow of an abundance of a relationship with God and how we know that it's not about uh, if things come up in life, it's a matter of when they come up, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, we know that things are going to come against us. So we as Christians need to know that we don't have to live defeated lives, that we can be preparing to live out of that overflow of a relationship with God. And we're going to continue in that this morning by me sharing a message with you entitled The Power of Scripture. We kicked off this year talking about how our church is growing to the next level in three specific areas. And one of those was being the area of maturity. And what do we mean when we say maturity? Well, we mean a lot of different things that we want to grow as a church, but one of the areas I want us to focus on is growing to the next level in maturity by being people who focus on the fundamentals. People who focus on growing in their relationship with God. Because no matter what thing you may face in life, It is always the fundamentals that if we get strong in those things will help us to make it through. Matter of fact, you can look at any type of uh, sport. It's not all of the trick plays. It's not all of those amazing catches that get people to that bowl game. It is the people that are in the game when they practice focusing on the fundamentals, making sure they have those things down because those are the things that we need to rely on when the enemy would want to come in and when the challenges and adversity of life, it's not the magic pill. It's not the latest workout DVD that comes out. It's not the latest uh, fad that is going to just help this area or that area. It's us focusing on the fundamentals. And in Christianity, those are prayer, being a person of the scripture, and being available. So prayer, scripture, and availability. And I want to talk to you this morning about the power of scripture because we have a ton of resources available to us in our world. I mean, there are more resources available to us to be able to walk in victory and overcome and live a great abundant life. There's all sorts of books and DVDs and everybody's got a message or a talk on something that's supposed to help my life. And those things are everywhere. And I think that in some area, we need to recognize that there's only one that can truly transform our lives. There's a lot of things that inspire us, but only one thing that can truly transform us. Maybe you've watched a movie and you were inspired. Maybe you were inspired by a teacher or a friend or a family member. Maybe you're inspired by some ministry or minister, but none of those things compare to the source of Holy Scripture, the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Today, We're going to talk about that power of Scripture. So if you have your Bible, go to Matthew 22. And don't forget, in case you um, forgot or you were unaware of this fact, that if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles at the back of the sanctuary um, over by the sound booth. There's a uh, bookshelf on either side, and you can grab one of those. Maybe you left it at home or left it in the car. Maybe you just don't own one. If you don't own one, consider that our gift to you. You don't have to ask anybody. Just take one of those for your own. They are the English Standard Translation, which is the translation that I am going to be teaching out of today. I believe it's very easy to understand, and so make sure you take advantage of that. Otherwise, we also have the Bible app that is available um, for you to download for free in the App Store or in Google Play. Um, For those of you that we're still praying for, um, you can download that in Google Play. So that was a joke, by the way. Sorry. 
Um, Matthew 22, let's look at verse 34. Before we do, let me give you just a little bit of context. Matthew chapter 22, what's going on here is that Jesus is about to be confronted by the religious leaders of his day. Now, this happened a lot. Jesus was constantly confronted by people who doubted him. They didn't believe that he was who he said he was, and they didn't believe that he was this person that all these people had made him out to be. And so they were trying to find some way to catch him, like either in a lie or double talk or messing up so they could expose that. And so they're always questioning Jesus, not because they wanted to learn from Jesus. It wasn't that these Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to hear what Jesus truly had to say or really know the answer to their question, they were just trying to find a way to accuse him or a way to go out and defame him and spread a bunch of junk about him and say, see, look, I told you so. And every time that they asked a question, Jesus always stumped them every single time. And this is one of those instances in Matthew 22. Let's look at verse 34, Matthew 22 and 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Oh boy, send the lawyer out to send Jesus a question. There you go. Because Jesus had already stumped the Sadducees and the Pharisees think they can do a better job. Verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So they're not asking, remember, because they want to know. They don't want to know what the greatest commandment in the law is. They're asking because they're trying to stump Jesus. Verse... um, uh, Over here in in, uh, verse 37, Jesus answered when they said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, that's a very interesting statement that Jesus made. Because not only did he say this is the greatest commandment, because if you do these two things, then you're going to do all the rest of the commandments. You don't really even need to understand the fact that you shouldn't kill or you shouldn't steal, because if you love God and you love others, you're not going to do those things. So on those two things hold actually all of the law and the prophets. Now, this was the terminology that was used in Jesus' day to refer to what we call the Old Testament. They didn't call the Old Testament the Old Testament, all right? They called it the law and the prophets and the writings and the historical books. They had different names for those different sections of what we collectively call the Old Testament because our Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. When anyone who would refer to Scripture back in Jesus' day would refer to it, they would refer to the law of Moses or they would call call it the Torah or the Pentateuch. We would hear those different names. They would just refer to it as the law for short. And then there were other things that they would do um, as well. They would, uh, uh, they, they would call Joshua through Esther historical books, or Job through Solomon would be called like poetic books or books uh, that were filled with wisdom. And then the remainder of the Old Testament was primarily made up of writings from the different prophets, both major and minor. That doesn't mean major and minor like one's better or more important. It just means that it's a longer book. And that's why it's called a major book and the shorter books are called the minor ones. So like a major prophet would be like Isaiah. Isaiah is pretty easy to find in your Bible because there's a lot of pages with Isaiah at the top as to where um, something like Hosea may not be as easy to find because not quite as many pages. That would be a minor prophet. Now, the Old Testament is made up of 39 books and four primary divisions, and those four divisions were referenced oftentimes in the uh, life of Jesus. So when we hear Jesus talking about how important and how weighty Scripture is, he's referring to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
and Numbers, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, he's referring to those first five books of the Bible, and he's saying this stuff is important. This matters. The prophetic words that were given were, these things, they matter. Matter of fact, in Luke 24 and verse 44, Jesus talks about, again, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. He said, all point to me. They all reference me. They're all trying to show you that I am who I say that I am. If you have your Bible open, go ahead and flip over a few more pages to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 This is Jesus sharing a parable starting in verse 19. Jesus is trying to help people understand what heaven and hell is going to be like, and he gives them just a little taste of that through a parable as he's explaining to them a scenario with two different characters. One ended up going to heaven, one ended up going to hell, and this is the parable of Jesus in Luke 16 and verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. His gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, and he was covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked Lazarus' sores. The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out. He said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and just cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he's comforted while you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and me, there's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none can cross from there to us. He said, Then I beg you, Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers that are still alive so Lazarus can go warn them so they won't come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. He said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Passage of Scripture always messed me up just a little bit. Because when I read it, you think, wow, somebody raising from the dead, that would be pretty impressive. That would make somebody believe, right? He said, no. He said, that would not make your five brothers believe. He said, they have Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, again, referring to the law, and they have the prophets. In other words, he's saying they have the Scripture because, remember, Jesus said all Scripture points and reveals who he is. He's saying they should be able to see it. They should be able to simply understand only from Scripture, not someone rising from the dead. This is not some trick pony. This is not some type of show and song and dance that they're putting on to try to make people go, ooh, ah, I want to believe. No, it's the Scripture that leads them to Jesus. It's the scripture that shows them their need for Jesus because the law shows us our sinfulness. And then the prophets show the the way that the Messiah is going to come and he's actually going to bring salvation to people. He said they got everything they need in the law and in the prophets because Jesus said it reveals him. I remember when I was in Oklahoma as a youth pastor that there was a a lady in our church that passed away and she was in her mid-80s. And such a sweet, sweet lady, and her husband was just heartbroken. And he came to church that very next Sunday after we had his wife's funeral, 
And there was a lady sitting next to him that looked just like his wife that had just died. And I'm freaking out. And I found out she had a twin sister that looked just like her. It was the freakiest thing because I'm going, I'm pretty sure I didn't dream that we just had her funeral last week. It freaked me out. And the sister came and sat by the, the, his, her brother-in-law. It was the craziest thing. But even if someone came back from the dead, it wouldn't do what Scripture can do. Uh, and case in point, I remember scrolling through Facebook the other day, and there was this video that was circulating along with the lady in the Chewbacca mask. There was another video that was circulating around Facebook of someone coming back from the dead. And I was scrolling through, and I was like, oh, somebody came back from the dead. Oh, that's cool. I'd rather watch this video of this cat playing a guitar. I just scrolled through it. I mean, it was interesting that someone put that on Facebook, but I didn't stop. Why? Why wouldn't I stop? Because there's so much stuff on Facebook that you don't know if you can believe it. You don't know if you can trust it. Just in case you didn't know, you can't trust everything on Facebook or Wikipedia, okay? <laughs> but I just kept scrolling because, honestly, I you know, saw people do things like that in videos. I've seen hoaxes before. It's just skeptical. So could you imagine? Here's this guy who's in hell, and he's trying to barter with Abraham, saying, hey, could you send Lazarus back to warn my brothers? He said, listen, bud. He said, even if somebody comes back from the dead, there's going to be skeptics. There's going to be people that are going to go, yeah, this was some kind of plot. This wasn't real. This wasn't legit. And they're not going to believe it. If you really want them to believe in Jesus to be able to avoid the punishment of hell and you want them to have their sins forgiven, they've got Moses and they've got the prophets. In other words, they've got everything they need because Scripture is everything we need in order to find salvation and to find life and to know God more because Scripture reveals the heart of God to man. It shows us God's heart. Scripture may not show us every single detail of every decision that we need to make in life, but it does show us the heart of God. The more you and I can tap into the heart of God, the more that we know His heart we have on our big red wall out in the lobby, it says, love God, love people, and serve the world. That's not really in the Bible just like that. But that whole concept of loving God is, the principle of loving other people is, and the principle of serving is all throughout Scripture. And we can learn the heart of God through knowing Him more. And that's where we got that from, it was not just from a Scripture that we read necessarily that said that exactly, but through the heart of God being revealed. We say, He wants us to love Him. And God's going to love people because for God so loved the world that He gave. So therefore, if God loves people, I can deduct from knowing more about God from John 3.16 that that's what He loves. And if He loves people, then He wants me to love what He loves. And so I need to love people. And then Jesus also said that there's no greater love that a man can have than this to lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus also bent down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet and then told his disciples, what you saw me do, go do it to other people. So we can see the heart of God is loving God and loving him and so we can love other people, so we can serve the world with the love of God. And we can see that heart because the Bible is the narrative of the heart of God. It's the narrative of his nature. I've always struggled with this idea of seeking God's face and knowing God more because when I grew up as a teenager in church, we used to sing this song about, I want to know you. I want to seek your face. I want to know you more. And it sounds spiritual. 
And it sounds right, but I didn't know how to practically do that because I didn't know what it meant exactly. I'm like, okay, I can sing, God, I want to know you. I want to seek your face. But does that mean pray louder? That's what it meant at my church. It meant pray really loud. I don't know what that means. How do I seek God's face? How do I know God more? And how do I walk this thing out? And so in my growth, I found that really to know God more and to seek his face is to become more familiar with his heart, to become more familiar with who he is. And the only way to become more familiar with the heart of God to where that has an impact on my life is spend time in his word because in his word shows us his heart. We can read about his heart and his very nature. Scripture tells me how to know God more by revealing his value system, by revealing his heart to me so I can trust him more. Because when I have a relationship with someone, really the quality of that relationship is determined by the level of trust that we have with one another. If we don't have trust, we don't have a very good relationship. So I need to trust God more. He tells me over and over again that he's worthy to be trusted. He has proven himself through his faithfulness that he's worthy to be trusted. But yet, still in our lives, we still want to default to our value system, to the way that we think things should be, instead of submitting and trusting God's. Because oftentimes our value system and God's value system are are butting heads and at war with one another. And we struggle with submitting to God's value system because I don't know if I can really trust that that's going to work. But his faithfulness proves over and over that he's worthy to be trusted, especially when we find out through his word that our value systems are at war with one another because somebody's got to give. Somebody's got to say, I submit. Someone's got to say, here I am. Your will, not my will. Your way, not my way. Instead of me trying to fight against him. Now, there are some things in your life that have been created and shaped by the environment that you grew up in. Some things that perhaps don't necessarily have a scripture and verse tied to it. And you wonder, what do I do with those areas? Because all of your values have been shaped by some experience that you've had or some teaching or training, whether you grew up in church or out of church, whether your family had certain values to do certain things and not do certain things and certain traditions. That's why when you get married with someone, those two different worlds kind of collide and you got to figure it out because you've got two different value systems at play and you think you're right and the other person thinks they're right and somebody's going to figure out how to make this thing work. For instance, one of the things that I don't really value that people in Wisconsin seem to value a lot more than me, especially my neighbors, is mowing their yard. I just don't care. I I grew up in the South, and in the South, we have this bahia grass that grows. You can actually probably sit there and watch it, like, actually grow. It grows if it's dry. It grows if it's wet. It doesn't matter. You can spend two hours mowing your lawn and go back outside and say, what just happened? And that's what I grew up in, and so therefore, I absolutely hate mowing my yard, and all my neighbors are probably aware that I hate mowing my yard. (laughs) It's just not something that's important to me. But some of the crazy people that live in Wisconsin around me say, oh, I can't wait for the snow to melt once so I can go out and mow my yard and so." And I'm like, what? (laughs) They're pushing their mower and eating cheese and wearing their Packer hats and have a brat in one hand and a wedge of cheese in the other. That was a lot of stereotypes. I'm sorry. (laughs) But, but, But they love mowing their yard. I mean, my neighbors absolutely love it. 
They think it's fantastic. Someone actually said, I can't wait for the snow to melt so I can mow my yard. What is wrong with you? In my flower bed, there are lava rocks and lots of them. You want to know why? Because I don't want anything else in there. I have like three bushes that I trim like twice a year and then lava rocks. I think it looks pretty good. But my neighbors are all out there, you know, planting stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's not for me. It's not in my wheelhouse. It's not in my value system. I just don't care. It's not important to me. Now, that may be really important to you. That may be something that you really think is important. And, and, and you don't understand why I'm not at the Home Depot buying new plants or I'm not going to the nursery, you know, here buying new plants or whatever the case is. You, you may get frustrated that I won't do that. You see, that's where oftentimes in our world, people try to impose their value systems on one another, but those things really don't matter in the grand scheme of things, because sometimes those are affected by the way that we grew up, the way we were raised, a value system that we kind of grew up around, or the things that just matter to us more. Now, it's different whenever the Bible speaks to something, and we see God's value system, because when we go to war with that, somebody's got to give, amen? But then there's those things that Scripture doesn't speak of. Like, there's no list in the Bible that says, watch these TV shows, don't watch these. There's no list that says, go out and, and, and go to these places and don't go to these places. There's no list in there. So what do we do in those instances where we don't have a black and white concrete issue to be able to truly submit to? That's where we spend time in Scripture and spend time with the Lord to know His heart through Scripture. Because the more I know His heart even the unspoken things in Scripture, His Word and His Spirit are going, to peer, are going to pair up together on the inside of me and lead me and guide me into all truth. That's why Proverbs 3 and 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all of your ways, and He will direct your path. When you acknowledge Him in all of your ways, guess what? He's going to direct your path. Because there's not a scripture that says take that job or don't take the job there's not a scripture that says to have this certain value in place there's not a scripture that says go mow your yard but yet there are principles in the bible that we can see that god will lead us with those principles because we're seeing his heart we're seeing what he's pleased with we're seeing what grieves him and when we know Him more and we know that more, then we can be led and guided by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said in John 16 and 13. He said the Spirit Himself will lead us and guide us into all truth. Philippians 2 and 12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And Psalm 37 and 23 says that the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. So even though the Bible may not directly speak to certain things, we can still know God's will even in those areas when we spend time with Him in His Word. That's the power of the Word of God because I'm beginning to see the heart behind it. I'm beginning to see the value system of God and there are unspoken things that I know God would be pleased with and things I know that He would not be pleased with and He'd be grieved with. And it's not because I'm, I, I have a list, but it's because rather I know Him. There are certain things that my kids, they won't cross certain lines because they know the heart of their dad and their mom and they know our value system, even though we don't have to spell every little thing out to them. And they know when they cross that boundary too. They know when they push it, even though there's not a spoken rule or a spoken thing that I've told them to do or not do. They know, they sense that value system because they've spent time with us and they know our heart. It's the same thing with God. 
It's the same thing with God. When we spend time in His Word, we see the heart of God to us and for us, and it helps us to trust Him more. Because that's the key to this whole thing, is trusting God. Because there's going to be a conflict. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you're met with conflict in what you want to do and what you know God's Spirit and His Word is leading you to do? What are you going to do at that moment? If I trust Him, I can submit to that and say, God, even though I don't like this, I'm going to trust. Even though I'm not seeing the outcome when I want to see it, I'm still going to trust. And that you're able to humble yourself instead of being arrogant and prideful and doing what you want to do. You can say, God, I'm going to trust you. Even though it doesn't make sense, even though I, even though I may not have been raised this way, even though I may not have had this value system, I can still trust and say, okay, God, not my will, but your will. That's really the whole message of Scripture is that God loves you and you can trust Him. God loves you and you can trust Him. And He's got your best interest in mind even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't look like it. He wants to lead you and guide you into that life that is abundant. He wants you to be able to trust Him and know Him more. But to do that, we've got to spend time in His Word and we've got to learn and grow to trust Him. We've got to seek His face. We have to seek to know Him more and that comes through spending time in His Word. But here's the deal. A lot of people struggle with the Bible because they feel they don't understand it. And so I want to spend just the next few minutes giving you some very practical things that you can do to help you to grow in your understanding of Scripture because God wants you to understand His Word because He wants you to know His heart. Amen, somebody. He wants you to know Him more. He wants you to know His heart. He didn't give us the Bible, His Word, so we would be confused. It wasn't some grand cosmic uh, uh, hoax or, or some grand cosmic practical joke that God was playing on humanity when He gave us the Holy Scripture and He said, hmm, that'll confuse them. See them trying to figure it out. <laughs> this is a great joke. He didn't do that. He gave us Scripture to be able to understand, and you can understand it without having gone to a seminary or Bible college without having had some type of degree, without uh, being from a certain background, or even if you're new to church and you're new to relationship with Jesus, it doesn't matter what your background, what your level of understanding is. God wants you to be able to comprehend who He is in His heart, and He wants you to do it more than just once a week on Sunday morning. Amen? Amen. He wants you to know his word because the more you know him, the more you're going to be led and guided into all truth. The more that you're going to grow to trust him and the more you're going to be prepared for what life has so you can live out of the overflow of knowing God and knowing you can trust him even when things in your life don't seem to be going the way that you had hoped. You can still know God is faithful and you can still weather the storm because you're solidly grounded and rooted in that truth. You can be set free because of that truth. It's truly the truth that sets you free. And so we need to be able to understand the Word of God and we need to be able to apply it. And there's a few things that I want to give you that will help you. Number one, get you a Bible that you can understand to some degree. There's nothing special that makes the King James Version the only Bible that you can use. I grew up in a church that thought King James was it. If you don't have King James Bible, you don't really have a Bible because that was the Bible Jesus used, even though it didn't get printed until 1611. <laughs> King James Bible 
was a government-issued Bible that was decreed by King James, who was the king of England. And the reason that that Bible was even printed and made was because there were a lot of other translations of the Bible that said things that he didn't like or that said things that were uh, contrary to what the church was teaching at the time. And so he said, all right, we're going to burn every other translation and we're going to make one government standard issue translation. And so he gathered a bunch of people together to translate the Bible into the English language. And that's why we have the King James Bible. It was a government-issued Bible, all right? And uh, there's nothing wrong with the King James Bible. Um, It is a word-for-word translation of the Bible. But some of it's hard to understand. Thou and thee and though. We We don't speak like that, or at least I don't. And God doesn't speak like that. We watch all of the old Jesus movies from like back in the 70s and 80s and stuff. And Jesus is all like, oh, hello, Peter. Howest are thou today? I loveth thee. Jesus didn't talk like that. Jesus didn't talk like that at all. Jesus spoke Aramaic, okay? And Jesus didn't talk like someone from England. Why everyone important in our movies is from England, I don't know. But he didn't have a, a British accent, and he didn't read the Old Testament scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, from the King James Version because it was 1,600 years earlier before it was ever around. Now, you do need to understand the difference in translations of the Bible, though, because it's really important and it could affect your interpretation. Now, there are certain translations of the Bible that are word-for-word translation. That means that the translators actually took the time to research the actual meaning of each individual word and translated it into an English word that would be understood. Those types of Bibles are King James, English Standard, which is what I preach out of, um, New American Standard, and there's a whole host of others that are literal word-for-word translations. Other Bibles that are popular are thought-for-thought translations, like the NIV. A lot of you may have an NIV Bible. That's one of the best sellers because it's easier to understand. The New Living Translation, the Message Bible, those Bibles are thought-for-thought translations, which means they took the idea of what was happening in that particular section of text, and they translated the idea, not necessarily each individual word. Now, I don't toss out thought-for-thought translations because there's some really good insight that helps to bring clarification to certain scriptures, but I always make sure if I'm reading a thought-for-thought translation of Scripture that I have a word-for-word to compare it to as well. And if I see any differences there, then I'm going to make sure that I lean more towards the interpretation that comes from the word-for-word and not the thought-for-thought. Because what if the person translating the thought-for-thought got the thought wrong? Does that make sense? So if you do use those Bibles, I'm not saying throw them away and get rid of them. I never say that. But what I would say is make sure you compare it to a word-for-word translation. English Standard is a great one. New King James or King James, great one. New American Standard, those are all great word-for-word translations of the Bible. New Living is very easy to understand, but remember, it's a thought-for-thought. New International Version, NIV. It's just get you something you can understand and make sure that when you stumble across something that may excite you, go, let me check that out and pull up another translation. Find one online if you don't own more than one Bible. And and you can check out the different translations and compare those. It's a really great thing for you to do. Always take the proper contextual, literal, figurative, cultural, and original intent of the author into consideration every single time. One of the best study Bibles on the planet, in my opinion, my humble opinion, 
is the Spirit-Filled Life Study Bible um, by Dr. Jack Hayford oversaw uh, a lot of the footnotes and things went into it. The New Spirit-Filled Life Study Bible. I use that Bible all the time. This is my uh, preaching Bible. I only use this on Sunday mornings um, to preach out of, but when I study personally for myself, I use the Spirit-Filled Life Study Bible. I just think it's absolutely phenomenal. got great cross-references, footnotes. It's got colorful maps in the back. It's great. So I would encourage you, find something that can help you to grow in understanding the Word of God, but always take the proper contextual, literal, figure, figurative, cultural, and the original intent of the author into consideration, especially if you stumble across something that you're like, ooh, I didn't know I said that. Well, when I look at Scripture, I want to make sure I understand the proper context, the proper framing in which I should view the Scripture, because if not, you'll grow up in the type of uh, uh, teaching that I grew up in, which was we would hand pick and cherry pick the different scriptures we liked that we wanted to fit our view of God into. It's like we already had this predetermined view of how God was and we needed to find scriptures to back up our idea. That's not the way you need to look at scripture. Let scripture speak for itself. That means if there's something that comes across in scripture that challenges a belief that you came up to believe, you need to side with scripture and not your idea. Amen? Always side with Scripture and not your idea because you can't just cherry pick the different Scriptures to make them say whatever you want them to say. But I grew up in the kind of faith that did and there was a lot of error, a lot of things I had to unlearn and I had to challenge myself. I had to challenge myself to let God speak for Himself through His Word. And that was one of the hardest things that I ever did in my life because it really challenged a lot of core things that I had believed as a young man. A lot of things I'd even taught that when I opened up Scripture, I was like, ooh, that's not right. Or that completely, you know, destroys that thought. Well, how, do, how do they fit that in? And if you have to make excuses for God, man, you're in a dangerous territory. If you have to make excuses for God. I decided I was going to read the Bible and learn the heart of God without having to make excuses for God. God doesn't need you to make excuses for Him. Amen? Amen. He doesn't need preachers or theologians to make excuses for Him. He is who He is, and He's worthy to be trusted. And I want to know His heart instead of trying to excuse this or this or this in the Scripture. And I want to find out who He is and know His heart. Always look, when you look at Scripture, always look at the literal and figurative sense of what's being said. If what's being said is actually literal, and what it says is what it means, and it's something that's applicable to your life, let it be literal. If something is figurative, then let it be figurative. There's a lot of figurative language in the Scripture. You'll see oftentimes, especially all throughout the book of Revelation, a lot of figurative language, talking about beasts and dragons and stuff like that. That doesn't mean a literal dragon or a literal beast. That's figurative language. That's poetic language. That's prophetic language where that actually represents something else. Some people have a hard time if they don't think that way and they're not very figurative people. But the danger is that people take literal text and they want to make it figurative. Don't do that. Don't take a literal text and make it figurative because you could do that with anything in this world. You could take the literal, the literal story or nursery rhyme of Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. That's not in the Bible, by the way. In case you didn't know that, but you could take that literal, that literal nursery rhyme and over-spiritualize it, and then all of a sudden I could preach a sermon. I'm going to preach today, Mary had a little lamb, somebody. Mary had a little lamb. Yes, she did. His name was Jesus. And his fleece 
was white as snow. He was clean and without sin. And everywhere that Mary went, that lamb was sure to go. And we need to follow that lamb. Amen, somebody. You can preach a sermon off of that, but there's no power to it because it's not Scripture. Even though the principle's true, I, I, I could be taking that way out of its original intent. So if something is written literal, let it be literal. People do that all the time with the Old Testament. I see that and they'll take... I, I, I read a, a story about a famous pastor who his very first sermon he ever preached was Jesus wants to roll away the stones in your life, talking about the stone being rolled away out of the tomb. And he taught something that was literal, but he used it in figurative language because when we do that, we can get into error and make the Bible say something that it doesn't say. And we can teach something that the Bible isn't teaching. And we need to be very careful when people want to take literal text and use them figuratively, especially if there's nothing else to back up what it is that they're teaching. You can get into a lot of error trying to teach something from a simple story, bringing it into a figurative context. Let it be what it was said. And find out, uh, who, who was the audience that this was written to? I love doing that with the New Testament letters to the churches. What was going on in Rome when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans? I mean, what was happening? You can look in a history book and find out what was going on. A lot of your history, some of you that may be a little fresher on your history than others, maybe you high school graduates, uh, would know a little bit more about some of the things that happened because you're a little closer to it. And you could be able to see in Scripture what was going on during those times. And then whenever you read Scripture, identify the principle that you can apply. What's the principle behind this? What's happening here? What can I see about God in His value system that something He said or a way a person responded to God? What's something I can learn about Him that I can apply in my life? And then the next thing I would encourage you to do would be able to meditate on it. And I'm not talking about get your essential oil diffuser out and start, you know, uh, or get your candles and get your, get your uh, little uh, sticks that people burn. What's it called? Incense and get all that stuff burning. And you lower the shades and you get your little finger clanging things that go ching, ching, ching. What are those? I don't know what they are, but if you have some, you get those out, you cross your legs, and you sit on your yoga mat, and you go, I'm going to meditate on the Holy Scripture today. Ching, 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 ching. No, that's not what it is. It's not what we're talking about doing. Meditating, it sounds really creepy, and it sounds very Eastern. It is the Eastern idea originally, but basically it means to think on the same thing over and over again. You know what the American word, I think, that would be better suited for an Eastern idea of meditating would be? Marinate. <laughs> Marinating is what's up, right? We love to marinate chicken or, or, or some type of steak or whatever it is or some type of pork. We love to get a good marinade going on. And what happens when you put that chicken into that marinade is that those flavors and those spices, they get infused with that meat. So that way when you cook it, it's not just on the outside, but it's on the inside, you see, when we meditate on Scripture, we're marinating on that Scripture. We take that one text that we may write down on an index card and we carry it with us and we remind ourselves of it when we're on our lunch break at work or before we go to bed or when we wake up in the morning and we think about, God, what does that mean? And we just kind of let it soak and we let it get infused and we let it 
we, we allow God to speak to us through that scripture that we're allowing to marinate in our mind and in our heart. I know a lot of times when I prepare messages, and I've been preaching for 18 years, that when I'll prepare, I'll be like, man, I have no idea what I'm going to share. I have no idea what I'm, I'm going to do, and I'll marinate on something, and I'll, I'll think about it and pray about it, and I'll think on it and pray about it and think on it and pray about it, and then all of a sudden I'll have an aha moment where all of a sudden I get this great idea that God has given me because I allowed this thing to get from my head to my heart and I allowed it to marinate. And let me tell you, the same thing will happen with you if you take that one scripture, that one thing, maybe from the book of Proverbs, that you just think on it, marinate, ask God to speak to you on that issue or on that particular text. And don't be afraid to ask questions. Share with other people be a great way for you to learn. That's why small groups are so important. That's why getting involved in community groups, because it's a great safe environment to do that, or have some friend that you can share it with. Maybe someone who's a little further down the road in their knowledge of Scripture, so that way you can begin to share your ideas or what God is showing you in Scripture to help encourage you and to keep you accountable as well. And don't start in the book of Revelation. (laughs) Don't start there, because if you're new to reading the Bible and you start there, you're going to really be confused. And even if you've been reading the Bible your whole life, you're still going to be confused because there's confusing imagery in there because when prophetic voices are written, they're not written necessarily to help you to foretell and know what's coming, but rather when it is here, you're more alive and aware of the fact that God is still faithful because he said this was going to happen, and I see it now, even though it was spoken in very figurative language. Figurative language like Jesus being the lamb, and there was a lot of things referred to as the lamb brought before the slaughter, all those things referenced in the Old Testament that Jesus said, that which was written it's here today. This is me fulfilling what was written in the book of Joel. This is, me written what, uh, this is me fulfilling what was written in the psalm. This was me fulfilling what was written here. And Jesus constantly referenced scripture that was prophetic saying, you know what you're seeing now? Well, this is that, okay? I did this in order to fulfill that prophecy. And that's the same way with the book of Revelation. People get all freaked out by it and they want to try to figure it out. What does the blood moon mean? Who's going to get elected? And is it the new antichrist? No, it's not. <laughs> doesn't matter how you feel about that. It's it, because you can't use those things to try to figure that out because that wasn't the reason it was given. It was given so when those things happen that you go, God is faithful, God's still on the throne. So if the bad things that the Bible said are going to happen come to pass, then that means the good things the Bible said are going to happen are going to come to pass too. Amen? It's actually to help calm you and give you peace, not to scare you. If someone is trying to freak you out or scare you with some type of scripture where They'll make this really low-budget YouTube video that they put out with like some scary music. And then the scripture pops up. He shall have seven horns. And then it shows the face of some world leader. shows the face of someone. This is the Antichrist. And you're like, ah! That person has no idea what they're doing. They have no idea how to handle Scripture, and it wasn't meant to make you afraid. Because Jesus said, even though you know this stuff's going to come, don't freak out. Don't be afraid. He said, because if the bad stuff that I said is going to happen, good stuff is too. And guess what? I've read the end of the book. We win. Amen? Amen? And so because of that, I can chill out. (laughs) Amen? Because of that, I can have peace because he's already won. He's already overcome. And so I share in his victory. So that means I can have peace because I've already overcome because he's already overcome. And I can chill out instead of worrying about the election, instead of worrying about the economy, instead of freaking out and losing sleep over things. I can go, you know what? I've got peace. I'm concerned 
and I want to see well of my country and, and well of my family and my finances, but, but I still can have peace that passes my understanding because he's faithful because what he said was true, amen? amen? So I need to make sure that I understand that. Now, if you're going to start reading the Bible, like I said, don't start in Revelation. Instead, I would encourage you, start in the book of John or in Proverbs, or in James. Those are three very practical books that I think would be great places for you to start if you're newer to studying your Scripture. Maybe if it's been a while since you've read the Bible. Hey, and you're like, Pastor Derek's encouraging me to get back in to reading the Scripture. Start with John because it tells the story of Jesus, okay? Nothing greater than hearing the story of Jesus and, and, and reading His words and meditating on what our Lord and Savior said while he was here on the earth. Or in the book of James, James was the brother of Jesus and, and, and hearing his perspective and what God has revealed to him to share. Or in the book of Proverbs, it's filled with all kinds of little practical nuggets of wisdom that'll challenge you or encourage you and, and, and give you something to think about that God would want you to think about to help shape your life. So I wanted to give you those practical steps to help encourage you because you can do this. It's a lie from the enemy that you can't understand Scripture. Matter of fact, maybe you need to write that down and remind yourself of that and glance at it every now and then. Write down, I can understand the Bible. I can understand the Bible. And I need to read that and I need to see it and I need to believe it because God wants you to understand because he's not the author of confusion. He is the author of peace. I want to give you a few other dependable resources that I personally use that may help you grow in your understanding of Scripture. One of those, of course, I've already mentioned earlier, the New Spirit-Filled Life Study Bible. It's got great footnotes and references and all sorts of things. Uh, you see the things that are in the, in the middle of the Bible that have like the little uh, letters like A, B, C, and D that may be above a certain word. Well, that's indicating that that is going to connect to another scripture that's very similar in another part of the Bible. So read those, look at those, check that out, and make sure that you invest in that. Or the little footnotes with the little numbers that perhaps there's a number um, next to a scripture that's connected to some little thing that's on the bottom of your Bible. That, those are little references and little uh, footnotes to help you better understand that uh, particular text. Um, another great uh, Bible that I own is called the Archaeological Study Bible. It's really cool because it has pictures in it. <laughs> I love books with pictures in them. I mean, just throw me a bone. Give me a, a picture every now and then. This is full of color pictures, which is even better. Bonus. And what it's actually filled with is pictures of different um, archaeological digs or finds of old ruins or tombs of places and things in the Bible. And it'll actually give reference to that particular passage. So as you're reading about this place where Paul preached, it'll actually show you the place that Paul preached at. And it'll show you this big Colosseum that, hey, Paul stood there, legit, real guy, Paul, not some fictitious Peter Pan story. Amen? We're talking about a real man who actually lived, who actually stood at this actual place that still exists today and preached to hundreds of people, and people got saved, and people came to Jesus at that place thousands of years ago. That's pretty stinking cool. So I like stuff like that. So if you enjoy that, maybe that would help your study get you an archaeological study Bible. You can pick one up at cbd.com for like maybe 14, 15 bucks, okay? I think it would be a great tool for you to have maps in your Bible. There are maps in your Bible. Have you ever wondered why? Because, like, I don't even, I'm never going to go to these places because some of these places don't even exist anymore. So why don't we have maps in our Bible? Is this in case we all get lost when we're in Jerusalem? Why do we have maps in our Bible? It's because this is given as a study tool 
to help you to know where these things happen. When it mentions a town, why don't you go, huh, I wonder where that is. Flip to the back and look at it. It'll make this so much more grounded and so much more real when you see this was an actual place or, man, they had to travel a long ways. That, that, that place where they were to where they went, man, there was a, to Caesarea Philippi to Bethlehem. That was a long, a long journey. And they didn't have cars. They had to hop on a camel or walk. I mean, this was a long journey through the desert at that. And it helps you to better give you an idea of the reality of Scripture. Another great uh, reference is Strong's Concordance and Vine's uh, Expository Dictionary. Now, I preached my first sermon when I was 15 years old at the church I was raised in. And my pastor um, didn't pay me to preach that sermon. Instead, he gave me a $100 credit in our church's bookstore. And he told me to go into our bookstore and pick out $100 worth of books. The very first book that I ever bought in that bookstore with that credit was a Strong's Concordance. What a Strong's Concordance is, a book about yay thick, okay? We're talking about a really thick book. The reason it's so thick is because it has every single instance of every single word that's in the Bible. Even the word in, the, and, every one of them. It'll show you where every single and in the Bible is, if you're interested in that. But what it does really well is it also is keyed to a dictionary in the back that you can find a particular word, look up the number, go to the dictionary in the back, and it'll give you the definition of that word in the original Greek or in the original Hebrew in which it was written. And so have you ever wondered sometimes when you've heard me preach and I'll say the Greek word for this or the Hebrew word for this, I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. I'm not that smart. I spent 10 hours yesterday working on my motorcycle trying to fix one part that would have taken a mechanic 30 minutes to fix. Not the smartest person on the planet. It takes me a little while. So I don't know Hebrew. I don't know Greek. But Strong's does. And so I can look up those interpretations there and those translations. So if you're ever doing a word study, like you're like, man, I wonder what that word that was actually used was. And to expound on a little bit more, to help me understand it. So you can look that up. So that's where I get those things. And Vines does a little bit better job of expounding on the Greek words as well. And you can get one of those concordances for about 15 bucks on cbd.com. So if you don't have one, you can get one. Um, I like to actually have the book. Some people can do it online, and that's cool because you can get it for free online if you want to study the Word of God online like that. That's cool. I'm not against it, but I like to smell the book. I like to touch it. I'm one of those people that I like to touch it and smell it, and, and, and I, like to, I like to be able to just, just have it in my hand. Looking at it on a screen just doesn't get me as excited. So that's why I don't really... I tried doing the whole preach from the iPad thing years ago, and it just doesn't work for me. I, I like touching, touching it and looking at it. So if you're one of those people, get one um, online, a printed one, or if you're cool with doing it online, you can get it for free at a resource like um, studylight.org. is a great website, studylight, L-I-G-H-T study light it's on our, the screen as well if you can see that studylight.org um, is on uh it is a great place where you can find all of those great word uh, references also the bible app the bible glow app those are free to download as well really cool resources the bible app has actually a lot of different devotionals and things that you can do on your own and you can actually make friends on there like a little mini social network and you can see the studies that your friends are in so that way you could actually like do something with a group or with uh, a buddy or a spouse or whatever and you could say hey why don't we do this one together i think it'd be really cool we'll both read it in our own time and we'll come together at the end of the day and talk about it hey did you read your devotional thing you, know, you can actually make progress it has a little fun progress bar in there i would recommend it. it's free man let's use these resources it, because here's the thing 
We have more resources available to us now than ever before. The church should be stronger and more knowledgeable of Scripture than ever before. Than ever before. Because we don't have to go to some place and unroll some scroll and have to sit there and decipher what it means. We've got tools out, just crazy amount of tools everywhere. So let's use them, amen? Let's stop sitting on these things. I want Word of Grace to be a church full of people who are hungry to know God more and who invest in knowing Him more through spending time in the Word of God so that their lives reflect knowing Him. Amen? Amen. So that we are prepared when the enemy would want to come in like a flood and the Spirit of the Lord lifts up a standard against Him and that Spirit would be the Word of God that we've invested proactively before the storm comes. So when the storm comes, we come at that storm with the Word of God and we can trust Him because we know Him. Amen? Amen? This isn't just so we can all have a bunch of giant heads with, full of Scripture. No, this is so we can apply it and our lives can be changed. Because remember, Jesus said, this stuff has the power to change a life. Not even somebody raising from the dead has that kind of power, but the Scripture has that kind of power. That's why I want you to know this stuff. That's why I want you to understand it. Because coming to church, I don't care who your pastor is. I don't care who the speaker is. I don't care who your favorite preacher is. There, it's not good enough just to come and hear it once a week. And it's not good enough to come and actually hear it every day because it's not just about you hearing it from another. It's about you pursuing Him for yourself. And you live in a country where people have died for the cause of you having the ability to read this and hear this without fear of persecution. At least for now. For us to not take advantage of that opportunity would be a slap in the face to those who have given their lives. We have a special, unique opportunity in the country we live in to invest ourselves in the Word of God like never before. Because as the days grow darker, we need to allow the light of Jesus Christ in us to grow brighter. Amen? Amen. You can go to freebiblecommentary.org. That's Dr. Bob Utley. He came and spoke at our church last October, and he has researched, I think, 59 books of the Bible, and he's got all of his videos and all of his uh, stuff that he learned all online for free, and you can use all that stuff. This is free stuff, guys. This doesn't cost you anything. And then get you a good journal, comfortable couch, and spend that time with the Lord, because understanding and applying Scripture has the power to change your life. Knowing God more and submitting to His will and His Word and His ways will change your life forever. So you need to get into his word. Seek to know him more through scripture. This is a way that God has given us to prepare for the world we live in and the challenges we face. So I want to encourage you and challenge you to spend at least 30 minutes a day in the scripture and do it before you get too busy. Do it before you get too busy, before things really get going really quickly in the morning. And set that alarm or, or, or take that time on your lunch break. Spend that time investing in the Word because I want us to be a church who, are, who is full of people who are of the Word, who had that relationship with God, whose lives are being changed and transformed radically by the power of His Word. Because this is powerful stuff, folks. This is life-changing stuff. Focus on the Scripture. Grow to the next level. Prepare. Invest. It's going to be worth it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit wogcc.com.